This is episode number 21 of Ships with critically acclaimed actor, director, and playwright Austin Pendleton. Welcome to Ships. My name is Pat McCandrew, and I am a professional actor, speaker, and coach. In every episode, we discuss a message related to the most important vessels in our lives. Thanks for being here today. Now let's set sail. Welcome back to the Ships Podcast. Today's guest is Austin Pendleton. Austin Pendleton is a playwright, actor, director, teacher, and a Steppenwolf ensemble member since 1987. He received critical acclaim in 1964 for his performance as model in the original Broadway cast of Fiddler on the Roof. He appeared in The Last Days of Isaac, for which he won the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Performance and an Obie Award, The Diary of Anne Frank, Good Time Charlie, and Up From Paradise, as well as many other plays. In August of 2006, Pendleton played the chaplain in Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage and Her Children, with Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline in the public theater production. As a director, Pendleton has worked extensively on and off-Broadway. His direction of Elizabeth Taylor and Maureen Stapleton and Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes garnered him a Tony Award nomination. His additional credits for directing include Between Riverside and Crazy, Uncle Vanya, Three Sisters, Ivanoff, and Hamlet, all at Classic Stage Company in New York. He has made over 100 appearances in television and film. His film work is as diverse as Beautiful Mind, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, and The Muppet Movie. In 2007, Austin Pendleton received a special award for his contributions to American theater at the 52nd Annual Drama Desk Awards. So you are all in for a great episode with Austin today. He talks about his journey from starting out in Ohio as a young kid who absolutely loved theater all the way to his time at the Williamstown Theater Festival and how that landed him the opportunity to become a reputable Broadway actor in New York City. We also talk a lot about his perspective on acting and how he has adopted the mindsets and teachings of his teachers into his own teaching today. So I think this is a great episode that I think all of you will really enjoy, whether you're an actor or whether you're not an actor. I'm hoping that this episode will be able to be a very enlightening experience that you could implement into your own lives. So without further ado, the one and only Austin Pendleton. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ships Podcast. Today, we have Austin Pendleton joining us today. Austin, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Pat. I'm happy to be here. 
I've uh, been very excited to have you on the show. We originally got connected with United Solo Theater Festival. You were doing master classes for them. And when I started this podcast, you were definitely one of the people I wanted to reach out with just because through uh, the things you were saying in the acting classes, it was, it was really resonating with me a lot. Oh, good, good. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could just start out by telling our guests a little bit about yourself. May, where are you from and what led you on to the path that you're pursuing today? I'm from Warren, Ohio, which <clears throat> I was born in there just, just before World War II. In, in 1940, and um, uh, <clears throat> then after the war, in Warren, Ohio, uh, they a bunch of people came to my mother, who who had been a professional actress and director before she married my dad, and um, she, she married him in 1938, and they settled in Warren. And after I was born, my brother was born, and then my sister was born. My brother was born just after Pearl Harbor, and my sister was born just uh, before VJ Day, uh, VJ Day. Oh, wow. Then in 1946 or 47 or something, some people in, in Warren, which at that time was a prosperous blue-collar town. There were lots of factories there. And at night, the, when I was growing up, the skies from the blast furnaces would be like the skies, you know, and gone with the wind. You know? <laughs> and the, um, That's amazing. Yeah, and... Uh, there was a whole group of towns there, like Warren and Girard and Youngstown, and and a town called a town called Niles, and they um, they the and the factories worked you know twenty four hour shifts, uh, I mean twenty four hours of different shifts, and it was prosperous, and the downtowns were very terribly vital, and in the case of Warren, very very beautiful. Warren was the county seat, so the so there was a courthouse square, and all around the courthouse square were major uh, were were law firms and stores, and it was like that. Yeah, and uh, lots of movie theaters, which in which I occupied a great deal of my time as a kid, <laughs> and um, the um, and so, but anyway, they began this community theater, and in. 1947, 48, like around in there, they started um, this, you know, all the people, the actors in the community theater were people who had jobs during the day, receptionists, or they worked in the factories, or they were optometrists or lawyers or whatever. So the rehearsals would be in the evening. So every evening after dinner time, they would come over and we would uh, change the furniture in the living room so that they could have the furniture and the appropriate relationship for whatever play they were rehearsing, and they would rehearse. And I was just struck. I was <laughs> dumbstruck. What was it about it that caught your attention? They, it just, the whole atmosphere in the house seemed, the atmosphere in the house was perfectly okay. We had a pretty stable family. But the, but it changed, it just, the air was exciting in the house just because you knew they were coming. <laughs> and this would happen maybe a couple times a week. That was for the first two or three shows. Then the first two productions were actually done at our house. Uh, they would hang oh, like in your actual house? Yeah, in the living wow. room. They would hang up a curtain halfway in the living room, and on one side would be folding chairs, and on the other hand would ha side would be the set of the play. And that just floored me. 
then, but they almost immediately began to have, have to, to be well received in the community. So they had to, they began to play in uh, the junior high school auditorium, the high school auditorium, then the junior high school auditorium, and finally they built a theater of their own, which still stands and in which they still work. And um, so I was just struck. And before that. Um, it was it was the days of the great touring companies of, of Broadway shows, and a show that came on a new tour every year was Oklahoma. <laughs> oh yeah. And we would be take us kids would be taken up always to evening shows for some reason, to Oklahoma like annually, and I always it was a different company. So it was always Oklahoma, but a di- always a different company. Yeah, yeah, and that's I just, funny. I remember, and we would drive back from Cleveland to Warren at night on a road that is still traveled there, Route 422, and I would just look out the window and dream of being in Oklahoma someday. And um, um, I just thought that whole world was so wonderful and fascinating and dramatic and magical. I still think that about Oklahoma. And, and a lot of their other musicals too, those people. And um, so, um, so between Oklahoma and then the community theater beginning in our house, uh, and then of course in the subsequent productions the community theater did as they moved to the other venues, I was always there. I would go every night wow. uh, of the run. And, um, and they did very ambitious, they did, you know, they did Tennessee Williams, they did Arthur Miller, and they did comedies and thrillers too, but, but, but interesting ones. And finally, a bunch of my friends and I, beginning like in, I think, the, I think the ninth grade, we began to put on plays in the basement of my parents' house. And oh, we nice. We rehearsed them for months. <laughs> and we would direct them ourselves, except once, once my mom directed one. And we, we did, you know, you can't take it with you. Yeah. We did the Glass Menagerie. I mean, we did. Oh, nice. We did Our Town. Wow. Yeah, you weren't messing around. Yeah, we did. You know, Agatha Christie, that wonderful play, um, um, Ten Little Indians. And much, much, much later in my life, the director I worked with, I, that I've worked with, Peter Bogdanovich, kept saying he wanted to do, like at the Public Theater, a revival of Ten Little Indians. Because it's, you know, it's an old fashioned thriller, but it's very valid. Yeah, and um, it never it has yet happened. I hope he does it. And um, so we did stuff like that, and we would rehearse these for months and months and months, like on weekends. I mean, the ones that we kids did. And I went to high school in Cleveland, so I'd come back on weekends, and we would rehearse all weekend. I mean, for months and months. Wow. And um, so it was just all theater all the time. And then up, even up at the high school in Cleveland, I would play in the plays there. And uh, then I was an undergraduate at Yale. I didn't, I did, I, I never did go to the drama school, the graduate school. But actresses, this was when Yale was all boys, you know, uh, in the late fifties. Um, actresses from the drama school would come and be in our undergraduate productions, playing playing women's roles. And so we got a lot of infusion of that drama school, that graduate school energy. And what did you go originally for to study? Oh, I, I made, well, 
I loved the campus. I thought the campus was so beautiful. And it was Yale. Yeah. <laughs> I figured I was going to learn something. Right, right. And, and then, and I knew they had a drama school. So, although that wasn't what I was applying for, I figured there would, there's an influence of theater on that campus. And um, so, th so the, undergrad the, the undergraduate group, which was extracurricular, is called the Dramat. And during the four years I was an undergraduate, no less than three artistic directors of the Dramat happened, all of them brilliantly talented. Uh, Nico Sakharopoulos, Bill Francisco, and Lee Starnes. Wow. And they, would, they were on hire to direct a whole season um, of at the Dramat each in turn and they um and also in between my senior year of high school and my freshman year at Yale that summer I became an apprentice at the Williamstown the Williamstown Theater Festival which was run by Nico Sekarobos nice and um it was the first year they had apprentices so I applied and my cousin Lila applied and in the spring vacation of our of our senior year we we went to we uh, we drove to New York from Ohio and auditioned for Nikos. I think the work we did was execrable. <laughs> but and and we and he was he tried to be encouraging, but you could tell, <laughs> you know. And so we drove back the drive of shame back to New, back to Warren, which was in those days an eight-hour drive. Pennsylvania Turnpike. Now they have Route 80, so it's a little bit quicker. Yeah. But anyway, so we drove back, and our friends were putting on a play that night, so we got up real early to drive back and be there. And we consoled ourselves. And I kind of thought, okay, well, at this point I'd already been accepted at Yale in the fall, so I was really disappointed about Williamstown. But I thought, you know, I'll just spend the summer at home in Warren, and it'll be fine. It'll be great, actually. Then, one night in early June, one Saturday night in early June, the phone rang. This was in the days when the phone would ring. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, a landline would ring. Right. And you didn't know who it was. It was even before caller ID. <laughs> like that. And so my mom answered, and it was somebody from Williamstown. This is the first weekend in June now, saying Austin has been accepted as an apprentice. Wow. And she and and my mom was going great. And she asked about my cousin and they said no. And she said Austin's not coming unless she goes. And I'm go I'm I'm ruthless. <laughs> I'm ruthless. I'm like Eve Harrington. I'm ready to throw anybody under the bus to get there. Yeah. And but and I was signaling she said <laughs> And she obviously what she figured out cuz my cousin was really talented. Um, what what she figured out, what my mom figured out on that call was, if they're calling this late, they're obviously having trouble corralling apprentices. It was the first summer they were going to have apprentices at that theater. At the th this would be the third season of the theater. And she figured they can, you know, they should stop playing elitist games. Those apprentices are needed to build the sets, yeah. do all the grunt work and be in crowd scenes. They, and she said, you can't have Austin unless you have her. To this day, I'm impressed by that. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, and and um, um, she knew what she was doing. Because she worked in theater. So she knew, you know. Yeah, she knew how it went. She knew how things go. Yeah. So um, 
uh, I remember everything about that night. So then they needed us like a week later. So and clearly the fact that they were calling at the last minute. Yeah. So, so they ended up taking both of you then. They on right on the phone. Yeah, oh, that's said, great. Okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so my cousin and I got and and my mom drove us from Warren to Williamstown. And there began that summer, and it was just in those days, an equity company, equity, equity company, comprising primarily of 12 people or something like that, and maybe two non-equity people in the non-equity company, and us apprentices to build the set, and the non-equity actors, two non-equity actors to build the sets. And, um, and the, if you're an apprentice, you also drove around, and put up posters all over that part of the Berkshires. And, uh, or you went um, to pick up props from different people's houses for the plays. And, and, but primarily you worked in the shop in which I was beyond inept. <laughs> and so, um, but it was just a few people and we were all staying in the, it's, it's on the campus of the college in Williamstown, which is Williams College. Yeah. So we were all staying in one of the fraternity house, the equity actors, the apprentices, everybody. And we just saw each other all day long, and at night we would go for drinks at the Williams Inn, and sometimes the equity company would go swimming late at night. Oh, nice. Yes, and, <laughs> and, uh, and they would be up early in the morning. The same actors were in every play. One in the morning, they would rehearse the play that was going to be on in two weeks. And the afternoon, they would rehearse the play that was going to be on the next week. And then in the, in the play, and the apprentices in one way or another were involved in every play, either acting in crowd scenes or small parts. Yeah. Or they would be um, behind the stage and helping to run the show, and therefore in rehearsals as assistants, you know, taking notes. So everybody, the equity, the non-equity, the apprentices, the designers clearly, the, the little the, the the design staff that were all day every day huh. and um, the plays were not like summer stock plays we did a couple of recent Broadway hits but we also did a, also did a view from the bridge by Arthur Miller which was not on the summer stock circuit a lot of those days <laughs> yeah and we did a play by Giraudoux the French writer we did a play that had just flopped on Broadway by Tennessee Williams, which is a brilliant play, Orpheus Descending. One of his best plays, I think. I couldn't, that was my first introduction to something. I couldn't figure out why that had flopped. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea, and I still don't. They had a great cast on Broadway and everything. But, so we did, so the season was large, and Shaw. Okay, the fine, and every, a different play every week. Oh not, my and gosh. not just regular summer stock fair. And why why was it that the Williamstown Theater Festival ran it this way? Because that does sound very different. That that well, what Nikos wanted to do was pioneer the changing of programming in summer stock theater you, to start a whole new idea. I'm oversimplifying a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that movement was happening other places too, but but not very. I mean, usually summer stock theaters did comedies and the occasional thriller. And because the idea is that's what people want to see in the summer. But he said, why can't we do real theater? That's great. It was thrilling. And and if you even if you had a small part, you were in rehearsals, you know, and, you, and I, 
practically, now I'm speaking all even, you, you would be in rehearsals and you would um, watch them work on these plays. And I learned more just from that. Now, here's what finally happened at the end of the summer. In those days when I was an apprentice, I had a stammer, a terrible stammer. I mean, a really hard to function type stammer. And I navigated through life, but I found like in school plays and stuff, I usually transcended it. That's part of the reason I was drawn to acting. And, um, but Nikos was aware of it. So he thought he was very reluctant to put me in a, in a role that had a lot to say. And he was very protective. I mean, he was very, he wasn't discriminating. He was doing what any intelligent director would do. Yeah. And what if I fell apart being on stage with professional actors and couldn't speak and all that? He was doing what, what any responsible artistic director would do. And the final play was the Shaw's play called Caesar and Cleopatra. Early in that play is a long speech by the young prince, who's the brother of Cleopatra, whose name is Ptolemy, and he's like 14 or something. And he has a long a speech written by George Bernard Shaw. And Nikos, I, I was sort of vaguely aware of this, was calling um, every non-equity and even equity actor he knew in New York, could you just come up and do this? And everybody was busy. Wow. Or they just didn't want to do that. They didn't want to do it, whatever. So finally, the show had been in rehearsal for its, its two weeks. And in those days, what they did at Williamstown was on Saturday morning in the rehearsal room, they had a run-through. And the designers came and everybody came to see how it was going to be staged. This is still in the rehearsal room. Then the show that was playing would do a matinee in the evening and close. And there would be, there would be a strike night where the set, set would be struck and the next set put up. and was all night thing and all the apprentices were involved. And then there would be a technical rehearsal on Sunday night and the show would open on Tuesday. So that Friday night, the Friday night before Caesar and Cleopatra opened, it was the last, second to last weekend of the summer. And everybody every was exhausted and kind of loose and I got really drunk that night. <laughs> really, really drunk. Because we'd all gotten very close. Right, right. You Everybody. built you built a community through yeah, the summer. Yeah, oh, I felt like yeah. a community like the which I never exactly felt. Yeah. And and I got really drunk and everything. I finally staggered to bed around two o'clock at seven a.m. over in that fraternity house we were all staying in. There was there was banging on my door, and the technical director rushed in and shook me awake. I said, "What's happening? What's happening?" He said, "You're going. You're going to meet with Nikos at nine, in his office." Um, at 10 o'clock you'll be in a run-through and you can obviously you can carry the script and I said wait what's this about <laughs> he said oh you're playing Ptolemy wow <laughs> I, I, and I, I didn't even have time to be scared I was just disoriented yeah, I, yeah. I, especially I, if you got like shaken awake <laughs> yeah and, and hung over like you never <laughs> and like five hours of sleep <laughs> And I, at the end of an exhausting summer, yeah, a wonderful exhausting summer. And I, so at nine o'clock, I went to Nikos's office, and he's sitting there pale as a sheet. And he's he was he was scared, but he had no other options at this point. Yeah, he's and he said, "I'll never forget this." He, he had a Greek accent. He says, "So, 
busted and uh, you you have acted in high school plays, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was clutching at straws. I said, yes, yes. I was like Ruby Keeler in 42nd Street. <laughs> put me on, put me on. Yeah. And, and uh, he said, so you can, but I know you had preparation. This is no preparation time. You'd be all right. He was very concerned. <laughs> and I said, yes, yes, yes. He said, okay, maybe you don't have to be all night in the strike night tonight. Now, I was in the show that was playing its two final performances that day, which was Orpheus Descending. I had two tiny roles, you know, but I was in it. So we got to get you get some sleep this weekend we will work some but but on the other hand most of the apprentices had left by this point because they were exhausted so there was only me and my cousin who were inept in the shop wow and one or two other apprentices so i had to be in the strike night and the setup for the next set to lend whatever i could do and so and she said this morning in the run through which is like an hour away and the and he's on Ptolemy right at the beginning of the play. Um, you you will read the script and you will say your lines. I, I the stage manager will show you the blocking right now. So at the run through, I kind of aced it. Everybody was so relieved. Also, everybody sort of couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was like I guess because you had been an apprentice the yeah, whole summer. And I, I had difficulty speaking, but I wasn't having any difficulty speaking. That's a strange. There are great actors in history who have had that problem, but on the stage something happened. I don't know. Yeah. Plus, well, I'll get to that later. Um, so, um, and so then we played the two performances of Descending, and I was in the strike night, but occasionally they would let me lie down for twenty minutes. That they were afraid if I got too exhausted. And we went through the whole technical rehearsal thing and then the dress rehearsals the next day. Then we opened on Tuesday night, and it went off like a charm. Wow. And I got good reviews and everything. That's how it all began, Pat. That's amazing. Yeah. And um, then it played its week, and then we the season ended. Therefore, when I arrived at Yale as a freshman, Nikos was teaching at Yale then in the drama school, teaching, directing. But he told people about this. <laughs> so I began to be approached by the dramat. The, wow. Well, he was still the director of the dramat, also teaching in the graduate school. Yeah. And um, he started putting me in the shows at the dramat. And and I was just like gung-ho. And... and uh, then my parts from year to year with the succeeding artistic directors at the Dramat got bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, I was sort of a star <laughs> there on the undergraduate on undergraduate level. And um, along with I was there at a very hot time for people who wanted to go into the professions. Um, I was in plays there with, in the Dramat with Sam Waterston, Phil Proctor. Oh, I wow. a couple of musicals with Peter Bergman. Uh, you know, Peter Bergman and Phil Proctor in a few years became half of what was called the Firesign Theater. And wow. when that broke up, they were a comedy act, Proctor and Bergman, who, who traveled all over the country doing their act. And uh, Peter and I wrote a couple of musicals. Oh, nice. Because the, huh. the dramat had a thing where in the spring there was an original musical. When I was a freshman and a sophomore, those mu musicals were written by Richard Maltby and David Shire. 
huh. who, who were then juniors and seniors. Wow. In, you know, in those two years. So after Maltby and Shire left, there was no one. So Peter Bergman and I rushed in and started <laughs> writing musicals. And we wrote one for each of our remaining years at Yale. And so, and then I came to New York. And so you came to New York right after graduating from yeah, Yale? Yeah, um, in the fall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And within three months, I got this leading part in Jerome Robbins' Oh, Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hanging in the Closet, with two of the greatest actresses of the time. One was Joe Van Fleet, who had already won a couple of Oscars and all that. And one was, um, just, it was just the beginning of the career of Barbara Harris. And I got that by such a fluke that it's almost impossible. And I thought, I don't believe. And it was an off-Broadway show, but it was Jerome Robbins. <laughs> yeah, Joe Van some big, Fleet. some big when names. I, when I was a freshman at Yale, I would go down and watch Get Standing Room and see Look Homeward Angel with Joe Van Fleet, just to watch her. Yeah, I had no idea that within I, uh, like she five years later, me. and then yeah. she was in all those East of Eden that movie and the other Kazan movies and. She just fascinated me as an actor. And, and I, at that time, I'd never heard of Barbara Harris, but um, she, um, she came in from Chicago with that improvisational group from the Second City. And so we, now the only fly in that ointment was suddenly I'm playing a play, and the play was a hit. It was a hit largely due to Barbara Harris. I mean, Joe Van Fleet was terrific, but Barbara Harris became the new sensation in town. And three weeks after we opened, Richard Rogers and Alan J. Lerner had announced they were going to write a musical, and now they said they were going to write it for her. They, Richard Rogers, ended up not writing it, so it went to Burton Lane. It became a few years later, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. But the announcement in this little uh, off-Broadway theater, not only is there Joe Van Fleet, but there's a young woman who the two giants of the American musical theater say, and they didn't even know what it was going to be about. It was wow. just going to be for Barbara. We ran a year on that. So, the only fly in that ointment was that. I'd never done eight shows a week for months and months and months. I had no idea how to do it. And I just kept literally falling apart. And the character in the play has, has a stammer. So I couldn't escape the stammer wow. in this play. And it kept getting more, it would some nights get too much control of me. And, and, uh, and then some nights I wouldn't, to get away from it, if I could manage it, I wouldn't stammer at all, which of course was wrong for the part. And I just was going crazy. And I, soon into the run I said I, I, I need to withdraw but Jerry Robbins said no you stay in it you fight this out we wouldn't be sitting here if he hadn't said that to me I wow. would have quit I probably would have been afraid I probably wouldn't have been asked to act again yeah and and uh, you and so the whole year was a struggle and and somebody in the cast was it had a lot, 10 or 11 people in this one guy in it by the name of Barry Primus who wonderful actor I said to him I don't know what to do Jerry wants me to stay in the show but I the problem keeps overwhelming me again and I he said I don't know what and he gave me subway directions to go down and audition for Uta Hagen oh. so that uh. began to didn't make the stammer go away but it began to 
to wildly oversimplify, she tells you, you take what you got and you mold it into the demands of the character. So it's, it became to be comprehensible to me. I struggled with it, but overall the performance began to grow. Sometimes I would slip back into the worst nights, but more and more it began to grow. And then in the fall, which was halfway through our run, we ran from February to February. I got in the thing called the Lincoln Center Training Program, which was a program a, a year from then, the Lincoln Center Company was going to open under the direction of Elliot Kazan. And it turned out that their first play was the Arthur Miller play, um, After the Fall. But the year before that, which is what I'm talking about, they were beginning a training program, eight hours a day, five days a week, um, for eight months, September to May. So it overlapped with ODAD by several months. And intensive training and acting. They didn't pay us, but on the other hand, uh, um, we didn't have to pay for it. It was free training. And if you already had a job, like I was in ODAD, you could keep it. You couldn't audition for a new show. Gotcha. And, but in that was like Frank Langella was in that program and Faye Dunaway and, and Barbara Loden and remarkable people. And it was clear, they told us at the beginning, at the end of this, and also Barry Primus, as it were, who happened, who was in Oded, who was a breathtaking actor and friend by now. And, um, um, and the acting teacher was Robert Lewis. And we had a, a movement teacher, Anna Sugaloff, one of the major mid-century choreographers in New York, and a speech teacher, Arthur Lessack, who would give me private lessons. Wow, that you didn't have to pay for. Yes. That's well, amazing. No, I did pay oh. him. Oh, yeah. He said I didn't have to, but he took extra time. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. And after... After Odette was over, uh, then I was free to do it in the evenings with him. And he gave me a whole set of techniques. He really, he took, he really took the time. Plus, you're getting acting lessons, first from Uta Hagen at her studio, then from Bobby Lewis for eight months. And so the ship began to turn around. <laughs> then Jerry, and then I, and you were told at the beginning of the Lincoln Center training program that at the end of the eight months, half of us would be taken into the company. So it was an eight-month audition. So wow. there was all that pressure on it. Yeah. I didn't feel the pressure because I didn't really care if I got into the company. I just, the idea of this training, and Ilya Kazan would come and watch our scenes, and my friends and I in Warren, <coughs> in the 50s when we were teenagers, and we, went, we lived for every next Kazan movie. So, you know, so that was like something. And then, so then I got in the company, but they didn't really have parts for me that fall. I mean, tiny parts. And I thought, but still, I'll be in the room with Ilya Kazan directing a new Arthur Miller play. <laughs> I can think of way worse ways to spend my time. <laughs> no, it's not so, a bad deal. So I thought, fine. But then Jerry cast me in what became Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, Jerry Robbins. Wow. So I had to pull out of the Lincoln Center. Yeah. And then 
What what was the process with Fiddler on the Roof being created, as far as you know, from when you entered the project? Well, I entered it. I was the first one cast because I auditioned for it. And for, and for Jerry, you had to audition like six times. I auditioned six times for Odette Bourdain and six times for Fiddler. And the first four, no, first five of those auditions were for the role of Perchick, the revolutionary, which I really wanted. And I was stunned he was offering because Perchick has all this... Uh, this um, ardent, ardent rhetoric of a revolutionary nature. Yeah. And I thought, this is so opposite from Odad. This is, and now, and I can do it now. I have this strength. I was so excited about that. And then at the sixth audition, he, I did it again, and he said, okay, that's great. While you're here, will you read the part of the tailor? And I thought, oh, that stupid part. I don't want it. <laughs> but I read it. And then my agent said, you have to decide right now because Austin's in the Lincoln Center training program and they're about to, st in the Lincoln Center company, and they're about to start rehearsing Arthur Miller's new play. So you have to decide tomorrow wh whether he's in Fiddler, Fiddler or not. So Jay said, okay. And he said, tell him he's playing the tailor. So I was the first one cast. Wow. I hadn't even cast, you know, Zero Mostelia. Huh. And so because of that, so it was in September, then the opening, the rehearsals were way postponed several months. So in fact, I could have done the first Lincoln Center, but, but that was all right. Um, so for, this is October, I got the part, and the rehearsals are now postponed to June. During that whole time, Jerry would invite me to their design meetings so I could sit in and listen to them talk. I was there when they played the score for Hal Prince because they wanted him to produce it. Um, I was, it was like I was in on all these things. Jerry and his collaborators would go to, um, in those days there was a big Orthodox community in Williamsburg, to we would go to Orthodox weddings like there is in the play. Wow. And he had me reading up on all the culture of the shtetls and so forth. And so for eight months, I was involved in, I'll, I would hear the score, um, and each time they would play the score for people, I mean, Harnick and Bach would perform the score. Um, some new song would be there that wasn't there before. Like, one night they suddenly played Tradition. Oh, and it was all yes. very, I, and, and then at the meantime, all through those eight months, I was taking speech lessons and singing lessons. And um, and I and continuing acting with Uta Hagen and Herbert Berghoff, her husband, and um, so it was very. It was I remember that eight months very fondly. And um, uh, and then we finally went into rehearsal for Fiddler, but in the meantime, during that eight months, they in in creating the show, they really transformed it. Uh, when I f first was hired, they didn't have anything like tradition or any of that whole idea in it. And, and, and Jerry kept saying, it's not clear yet what the show's about. Finally, they said, well, it's about tradition. So he said, write a song called Tradition. <laughs> it must have been amazing just to see it, it kind astounding. of hone in on that. Because it was always a charming musical. But by the time we went into rehearsal, it was an elemental musical. Huh. You know, and because, and any of the authors will tell you this, is because of Jerry Robbins. 
who had already worked with in Oh Dead, Poor Dead. Yeah. And, um, and who had fired me from, finally at the end of the year of Oded, the, the balance tipped and I was so exhausted and I couldn't control the stammering. He said, get out of here. And I, th- I was so relieved to be over it. And I, but I thought, well, too bad because certainly, certainly Jerry Robbins will never hire me again. And then he did. <laughs> and and um, I remember the morning after I was fired, I was fired after a Sunday night performance, which meant I had two weeks left. The next morning I went to the Lincoln Center training program. We always started the day with Anna Sokoloff, the movement class, which was very exacting. And we were all in our leotards, and she was this small, uh, Russian-Jewish, brilliant, intense woman. And um, and she came up to me, and she I, I liked her enormously. She came up to me and she said, "You don't, you're not concentrating here today." On these, and it was like at nine in the morning. You're not concentrating. And I said, I got fired last night. She said, so what? Get to work. Wow. I think that's (laughs) a central moment in my life. How so? Keep going. is is Yeah. In effect, there's going to be a lot of setbacks in this life if you want to. And you just keep going. That's what that meant. Just in those two words. Those combination of those two words and that fire in her eyes. And I said, okay. And instantly it was behind me. Wow. Yeah. So then you're working on Fiddler, and what comes next after Fiddler? I, my contract was up about a year after we opened. We've had this long out-of-town tour. We had eight weeks of rehearsal for Fiddler because Jerry always insisted that was un- that's still unheard of in a Broadway show, but Jerry would insist on that. And then eight weeks on the road during every day of which he rehearsed and made refinements in the show. So 16 weeks of that, with only three days off in the whole 16 weeks. And then we opened, and then we played, and my contract was for about a year. Everybody's contract was for about a year, and Hal Prince came um, to me, the producer, somewhere in there, um, halfway or more through the year, and said, um, are you going to renew in August? I said, well, I've just been invited to go to my hometown, to Warren, and after I leave this, if I leave it in August, and direct my mother in the glass menagerie. That's amazing. Al said, no way am I getting in the way of that. (laughs) You're going to do that. So he made me an extraordinary proposition. And and, and Broadway contracts and those were very inflexible. He said, you can take three months off after your contract ends. And then you can come back and I'll put your understudy on. And my understudy happened to be Leonard Fry who ultimately played the movie and who was clearly brilliant and and so and also so but at this point it was before the movie so he was going to get to play this role for three months on Broadway and then I would then he says Hal said you can then come back after you're through in Ohio and but you have to sign for another year so I walked around and thought about that for days 
and this was long before email or anything. So I wrote him a note one Sunday morning. I went to his office about a week after we'd had that conversation, and with still th um, three or four months to go with the show. And I said, I, I, I think when I come back from Ohio, I'll just take my chances. Thank you so much for being so kind. Because I, I, first of all, the night I was leaving, so was Zero Mostel. And I didn't want to do the show without Zero. Also, I wanted to know what else would happen. Yeah. And See what was next. Yeah. And so I came back after Ohio and nothing happened for months and months and months. And then another key moment happened. I, I mean, I, I, uh, I, could, I resumed my acting, my, I mean, my studies with Uta and Herbert. And um, um, somewhere in that, that early on, I, there was a director that I knew that I'd been introduced to. He said, how's it going? I said, well, I'm back, but I'm not getting any work. He said, you know what? Enjoy this time. Otherwise, you'll get work sooner or later. But if you don't enjoy it, you'll look back on this time and you'll say, I should have enjoyed that. Wow. So that was another. Your life is so measured by things that people say to you at critical moments, like Anna Sokol going, so what? <laughs> yeah. You know, and like, and I, and I still look back on that time fondly. I no one I would get auditions. Nobody was interested, and and I thought I'll never work. And I tried to resist the "I'll never work again" thing, which is a famous acting syndrome. Acting syndrome. And then finally, one day, there's a call. William Ball had started the American Conservatory Theater in Pittsburgh, and when I was in Ohio doing the Glass Menagerie, I would drive over there occasionally to Pittsburgh because a whole lot of friends of mine were in that company. They were doing all these plays in rep. It was very ambitious. And um, now they'd been kicked out of Pittsburgh for reasons that have never been clear to me. Interesting. After one season. They were a revolutionary new theater then and doing incredible work on all these classic and new plays with wonderful actors. What was the matter with the city fathers of Pittsburgh? I don't know. I won't even speculate. And the and uh, so I get this call one afternoon, and somebody's calling from American Concerns. We're reassembling. We're going to do a tour that's being financed by this wonderful woman in Chicago, Hope Abelson. Like we're going to Palo Alto and play all our shows in rep in the summer. First to Westport, then to Palo Alto, and then we're going to the Ravinia Festival in Chicago. And I said, well, what happens after that? And he said, we don't know. Would you come on the tour <laughs> and play? And he was offering me some what are called utility roles, supporting roles. I mean, not horribly small, but not leading roles. And when I said, they're all good roles, but no big starring. You know, right, right. And, I, and I, I was footloose and fancy free. So I said, sure I will. So we had this tour that lasted for a few months. And then at the end of the tour, um, it went from, it started in, I want to say May. We were rehearsing in March and April. We started in May. 
and we ended at Ravinia in early September, say. And the future was totally uncertain for the theater. And then, after a while, I heard they're going to reassemble. They were going to settle in San Francisco in January. And could I, would I join them for that? Yeah. <laughs> and then I got a part in another Broadway show directed by Alan Arkin, who I'd gotten to know. He was, he was a good friend of Barbara Harris. So I got to know him. When, and he offered me a part in a play he was directing on Broadway with all the other, uh, the other, it's an English play and all the other cast members were English. So I said, yeah. So I told ACT, well, if that play closes, I'll join you in January. And they said, fine, we'll, we can wait and see till then. It opened and closed in a week. Oh, wow. Um, it was a brilliant play, and it, it's the only time I've ever worked under the direction of Alan Arkin, which I found quite thrilling. I've acted with him since then, but... And then, so I went out to ACT for the season and played somewhat larger roles now and lived in San Francisco. Yeah, it's a cool city. Yeah. And it was very cool then. It headed into what became known as the summer of love, the hippies and everything. And in the late spring, got a call from my agent in New York. She saved the best for last. She said, Mike Nichols this fall at the, at the Vivian Beaumont in Lincoln Center is directing The Little Foxes. He wants you to be in it, would you? you find that interesting? I said, yes. <laughs> and so, and then I read the, I mean, I sort of knew it, but I read it and I thought, this part, I don't know what you, but yes. So we got in rehearsal and Mike said, you're, you're really miscast. But Let's make it an adventure, he said. Let's find a way for you to work in this. But I wanted to say, well, if I'm miscast, why am I cast? But I didn't say that. And we had a terrible time, but we finally worked it out, and we, so it was okay. And the show, of course, was tremendous. He, had a, he liked to do shows with all of his great actors. In them. What, and I finally said to the producer, one of the producers, why am I in this play? I mean, it had already it had finally begun to go well. Yeah. And Mike had been making um, The Graduate the summer before, in, in the summer months leading into when we went into rehearsal, um, with Anne Bancroft, who was now in The Little Foxes, and um, Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman. And, and Dustin, until then, had been a highly brilliant and well-noted off-Broadway actor, but not really known to the general public. And he had been giving some breathtaking performances, you know. And um, he, um, um, and so Mike thought, apparently, well, I'm going offer, to offer dust in the part of the young guy in Little Foxes because it's a limited run at Lincoln Center, and by the time it will have closed by the time the graduate opens, and but everybody will know he's playing the lead in the, the graduate, which hadn't come out yet, <laughs> and so that'll wow. give it a kind of. And Dustin kept 
of, for whatever reason, dragging his feet and giving an answer. So one day, and the producer told me this, so one day I called him, this is the producer talking, I called Mike and I said, Mike, have you, has Dustin, we have to public, we have to announce the cast. Has Dustin said yes or no yet? And Mike apparently said, he, he hasn't, he keeps saying, won't say either, just, I want to go ahead and offer it to somebody else. And the producer said, who? He said, find me another young, eccentric character actor in New York. My picture was in the paper that day, in the Times, because I had just won the Derwent Award for that play that six months before that opened at close <laughs> that Alan Arkin directed. My and the wow. producer happened to be looking at that picture while he was talking, and he said, Austin Penley said, hire him. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. See, we're seeing here a lot of like flukes. I never, he didn't tell, even tell you how I got into Odad, Poor Dad. They were <laughs> desperate. He, Jerry couldn't find what he wanted. And a friend of mine from, from Williamstown happened to be in her agent's office who said, Jerry, I just can't find that kid. And this actress said, I, I know somebody who would be right for it. I mean, he's brand new. He's not. And they said, have him come in and meet me. I'll just... So she sent me up, the agent sent me up to the casting director who just looked exhausted. I said, well, you, you, you have no credits, right? I'll give you an audition. I mean, like, a, we have nothing to lose, you know. And he liked the audition, and then, but I did, I did five more, and some of them were no good at all, because like I said, I didn't know what I was doing. And he would get anxious about that, but he just kept calling me back. I never could capture the fire of the first audition, which, alas, was a portent of things to come. But finally, I went home for Christmas, and I thought, so I didn't get one of the leads at Jerry Robbins' play three months in. I'm, I'm just going to, I think I'll just hang out here and hang out in January and see my friends in Ohio and just deal with it. It's, it's fine. It's fine. I didn't even want the part anyway because of the stammer. And I, um, the day after Christmas, the agency called and said, he wants to see you one more time. I said, this is ludicrous. I can't, it's painful. Every time I keep disappointing him, because I don't, I can't find that original thing I found in the first audition. I think I'll just stay, tell him I'm so grateful, but I'm just going to stay in Ohio. The agent said, I'm not going to make that call. Jerry Robbins wants you to come back tomorrow. You get on a plane tonight, and you come in, and you're there in the morning. And I thought, oh, shit. And I said, <laughs> I'll be back in a, a week or so. Gotcha, and I yeah. just want to hang out here. Uh, so I went in there to read with me was Barbara Harris, whom I'd heard of. And we started reading together, and it took off. Wow. So flukes... All the way down the line, and then some flukes have been have been very bad. But the ones I'm mentioning right now, it's amazing how these things in life just kind of that the universe puts things together in some sort of way. Yeah, and then both Mike Nichols and Barbara Harris, who were involved in the two fluke stories, were from Chicago. Mike Nichols and Elaine May had originated their acts in Chicago. 
and and Barbara had been in that improv group from Chicago that came into New York, which led her to getting Oh Dad, Poor Dad. Almost 20 years later, uh, I've been going along working and begun to work in films and all that. And then I hit a season at the Brooklyn Academy of Music where every play I did, I, the, my reviews got worse and worse and worse. And suddenly I was like over. And I, I'd made friends by then with, with Lynn Redgrave because I directed her in a play in Chicago. And then we had been in a movie together with Victor Mature, by the way. And so we were friends. And the day the third set of horrifying reviews came, I mean, really bad. Oh, no. Came out in, from, from the Brooklyn thing. And all th- I was in all three plays. I'd been in the Brooklyn season the year before and done very well. Now, all of a sudden, all three plays I was getting. And, the re- and some of the reviews were saying, you should just stop it, not act anymore. And indeed, I couldn't get auditions for anything. And the day the third and last set of horrible reviews came out, Lynn Redgrave, I happened to be in a meeting with her about something. She said, before you go to Brooklyn tonight to the show, let's see. She took me to the Russian tea room. She said, "Um, you're going to have a very rough time now. if If this were London, and she, of course, grew up in London. Her father was... Her father was Michael Redgrave, her older sister is Vanessa Redgrave, et cetera. <laughs> um, in London, it's always assumed if an actor's proven themselves and they get horrible reviews, they're certainly going to be on stage the next season. It's just a given. And they go, they still are very hurt by the reviews and they're very upset, but at least they know they're going to keep. New York is much more brutal than that. They just simply don't forgive you. So you're going to go through a lot of very bad years. But I want you to know that if you just know that, you'll, it, it, again, it's somebody intervening at just the right moment. And she made me feel kind of lighthearted. <laughs> First of all, she was comparing me to Michael Redgrave and his colleagues of that time who were the great English actors. Wow. And, and uh, she said, Ralph and John, she meant Ralph Richardson and John Gilgood, oh, they would be shattered by these reviews, but they would be working again. But you won't have the advantage they had because of the culture in the New York theater. And she was right. But meanwhile, I, so I discovered the showcase code, and I just got open to going wherever to act. Yeah. And that got me. And I did have the teaching. I was already teaching at HB. And so I've given you several instances now of somebody intervening, however briefly or in her case for an hour or so, at just the right moment when the ship is going down, saying, like Anna Sukhlov. Um, the... Um, so these are the pillars that have brought me here today. It's incredible. It really is. I really love how there's these really pivotal moments at different points in your yeah. life that were, in a lot of ways, hints telling you to continue yeah. with this work. Yeah. They were either hints or like like orders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. And... and um, the uh, and the and the the directing had started by this point too, so there was that. 
well, he can't act, but he can still direct, you know, <laughs> the way they talk. And then I began to write plays. Wow. So all of this is sort of in response to this wildly volatile acting career. And um, so what, what it had to, gave new meaning to the term ups and downs. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, the, um, um, that's, so everything since then has been a uh, sequel to that. Right. There's, there's something, obviously, you've had a very amazing career as an actor, director, and a writer. And there was something that you said specifically in um, your teaching about listening and talking. Talking and listening. Yeah, talking and that listening. That was a Bobby Lewis phrase. Yeah. That, Robert Lewis. He would, <laughs> he would not. That was his mantra. And he would train us in all the different aspects of acting, you know, the really important aspects of acting, like speaking well and like how to emotionally identify with a role, things that Uta and Herbert would also teach. Um, but he just kept saying, all those things will go for naught if you're not talking and listening. And he would have, when we would bring in scenes, he would assign two character scenes to all of us all during that eight months the first thing he would evaluate would be the talking and listening. Then for years after that, he would come and see shows I was in or shows I directed. He was very loyal to everybody. Um, and so we would go out and talk about it, and the first thing he would say was, the talking and listening in this one was really good, or the talking and listening in this one, you should keep an eye on that, or in, either in your own performance or as a director. He, he never, that, that became the glue that held everything else together for him and by talking and listening for our listeners who might exactly be wondering what it says. yeah because i think a lot of actors have a tendency to complicate things yes yeah that, and he's saying you can get as complicated as you want but it has to be distilled when you're talking to somebody be sure you're talking to them not just saying your line in a prearranged manner to them uh and and be then Pay attention to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really, it's amazing. It's so yeah. primitive. Yeah, but it, it, it's um, that was certainly the implication of everything any good acting teacher would teach. But he would just he made it a phrase. He made it a, and so my teaching is so is ninety two percent a mixture of Bobby Lewis. Ud Hagen and Herbert Berghoff. Yeah. And what do you find, whether it be in shows that you see or actors that you work with, what do you find that a lot of actors tend to get wrong? Is it that they tend to complicate things, or is it something more than that? Sometimes they complicate. Uh, by complicating things, first of all, just to be clear, you could, there's no such thing as complicating a role too much. I mean, the more complexities you evolve, the better. And, but it's just the um, framework in which those complexities are expressed. They, first of all, they have to be dist distilled into talking and listening. And in fact, the actual talking and actually talking and listening begins to breed complexities because you take in so many things from the other partner that it affects your response. You're not thinking of the complexities, but they start to happen. And in any of your the research you do on a role complexities turn on. So there's nothing wrong with, com here's, I get 
the, there's a difference between the word complexity and complication. Yeah. Complication is a thing that can put you in your head where you don't really want to be as an actor. You want to be in the moment instinctively with um, whoever you're acting with. Um, but um, um, complication is you thinking about what you're doing all the time and you're not really taking in the other person and you're trying to express this aspect and that aspect. Unless you have distilled all those complexities that you found into the simple act of interchanging with whoever you're acting with, they are going to get in your way. I think that's what that means. Yeah. And some actors do that. I still do it sometimes, but there is an alarm bell that goes off in my head that says, or sometimes the directors say, y you're doing too much. And, and, and right away you go, rah, rah. That's, uh, you know, an alarm bell goes off in your head. And so you, I remember one night in a show, in a run-through, actually, but a heavily attended run-through, of a very complex Ibsen play being directed by an old friend of mine who's really brilliant, Eleanor Renfield. And we'd been rehearsing. It's a Ibsen play that's hardly ever done because it's so complex. Wait, what's it called? It's called Rosmersam, which is Norwegian for the home of the Rosmer family. And it's a very complicated play. It's a brilliant play. And I was playing one of the three biggest parts, that essentially the, the villain. It's a intersection of heavy relationships and politics. And the politics are wildly parallel to what's going on today. Yeah. And it's in provincial Norway in the late 19th century. And, it, and I was playing the right winger, who, who clearly Ibsen did not approve of. But it's a great role. He's a great writer. It's a great role. And we were rehearsing. And suddenly we get to a run-through where all the designers are there and other people who worked in the theater, who worked for the theater were there. And um, even some people like on the board. And it was a very risky sh play for that theater to be doing. Because it's the Ibsen no one's ever heard of. And there's, it's never been known to have a successful production. Wow. Ever. Huh. And unlike virtually any of his other plays. And so we started the first act. And I was carrying all these complications in my head of all the work we'd done. And the work had been going well. She's a marvelous director. And the actors were good. And the play is so alive. Suddenly the stammer which had not been a real serious issue for years and years, came back. And all through the first act, it kept building and building. Finally, I was just absolutely inarticulate. It was like it was like a nightmare. Was this during a performance? No, it was a run-through. A run-through. Which is right. effectively a performance. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, and it's in the rehearsal room. But it did have quite an audience there. Wow. An audience, as I say, people very attuned to the... Th to, involved in the company that was doing it and the designers and everything. They were just watching this house just, and the other actors I could see in their faces, they didn't know what to do. And I couldn't get out of it. And I kept, I'm thinking, I don't believe this is happening. Wow. This is ancient history. What? And then right toward the end of the first act, and it should have occurred to me half an hour or 40 minutes earlier, 
but I was in such a panic it didn't. Right before the end of the first of the three acts or whatever it is, I said, okay, just listen to him and then talk. <laughs> Forget all the things you're working on. Let Ibsen take care of those. Just, and it all went away. But as it was, that stammering, it's a long first act, it had so much time on they didn't even get through the whole play that night. It was very embarrassing. <laughs> and Ellie said, she called me and she said, what um, happened? I said, I, let's not worry about it. Let's just, she said, yeah, but I need to know. No, let, let's not. She said, okay, all right. Next day I came in, I was fine. Wow. But so huh. that's how overcomplicating it in my head, that's the, that's the form it took with me. It would take a different form with another actor. It would just, the work would just suddenly get very abstract and not, and not, the big word in acting is present. Yeah. You're either present or you're not, and if you're not, you're of no use. Right, right. No matter how accomplished you are or how interesting your interpretation is, you're without value. <laughs> and through your years of training and through your years of teaching as well, yeah. have you ever had a student who was just taking the class, maybe they weren't an actor or weren't interested oh, yeah. in acting? And, and how do you believe these skill sets could help people who aren't pursuing acting? Well, there's never, I don't think I've ever had a student who wasn't on some level or another interested, even if it was community theater they wanted to do. Yeah. But I, I don't think I've ever had a student who, sometimes I get students who are interested in directing and therefore they want to learn about acting, what actors go through. So you give them scenes and they experience the difficulties of working on scenes. But, and then sometimes, uh, and some of those people are often interesting people. I mean, really, but they can't act. Yeah. <laughs> but you you teach them all the basic tools. You teach everybody the same thing, essentially. <coughs> but then you have to adjust the way in which you teach the basic tools to exactly where that actor is. So sometimes students complain. Sometimes you overpraise people's scenes, and I don't know what to think. And I say, well, look. What looks like overpraise is actually acknowledgement that that actor in this scene has just made a big leap in their work. And certain problems that have been there don't seem to be there so much anymore. Yes, by an absolute standard, it's not up to some of the other working class. But when an actor manages a leap like that, it's critical that you reinforce it. And, on the, and then sometimes you underpraise. Yeah, because... They do great work, but I think they're stuck in certain habits, and this scene has brought it out. So I try to make that clear without making an announcement to the class, but if people, and people get troubled when they can't, when they can't figure out an opinion I have of a scene. They, I said, first of all, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, a life in the theater is a life of being bewildered by people's opinions of <laughs> that's true and, but but also in teaching it's a very you you evaluate a scene relative to what it represents or does not represent in the growth of the actor 
classes are about people uh, growing. An actor who just comes in and every, and they're talented, but every week they do, they, they trot out their greatest hits, you know. You, you don't praise them as much. In fact, you even say, look, this really works, but why don't you look at other ways of attacking this material? Huh. They say, mm. and they legitimately say, well, why should I? Say, just so you don't get stuck, these things don't just turn into habits. There's no audience here that's going to um, review you. Well, they're going to go to a coffee, a bar and review you, but <laughs> there's nothing we can do about that. But the, um, um, but, and learn to watch the work, and if you know other work the actor has done, try to understand the critique in terms of an evaluation of, is the actor growing or not? Did the actor always have a certain thing that got in the way? And in this scene, it didn't get in the way. There may have been other problems in the work, but a critical thing got um, handled yeah. by the actor. And so that has to be reinforced, or the up, or it slips by and it's not noted and it doesn't remain. What would you say is your advice to aspiring actors who are looking to pursue a career in acting, whether it be in theater, film, or television? Well, f film or television, I have no idea. I mean, I'm I'm like everybody else. I don't understand why I get cast in certain. <laughs> film and TV and why I don't in others I uh, just don't understand it uh, and if it's TV you, on top of everything else you have the network you have yeah. I mean like I'll, once I this is just one example of many I, I auditioned for a pilot and it was a police procedure show I mean, it isn't one that's still on I forget what it was N not a bad script at all and they had me reading for like a detective in the police and it was sort of a very unlike a character I usually play or have ever played on television and I did well and they were visibly excited they thought oh this will be exciting he's a somewhat familiar personality and now he's doing a whole other thing <laughs> And there was a there was a vibe, and I I was really excited. And then I didn't get the part, but somebody told me that they had a friend who was in the room, like an assistant or something. And that after I walked out of the room, they all looked at each other and said, "That's the one." And then somebody else said, "Yeah, but one of the men in the network—I forget which network it was." has a candidate and he's just going to insist on that. Wow. So that happens in television. Yeah. Not so much in films. There isn't the extra presence of the network. Or sometimes you get a part because a network person decides they want you instead of the person everybody else wants. Yeah. But usually it works against you. And... Um, so I can't, I can't give any advice about TV. Film, I don't know. It's, um, film, casting in film has so much to do with 
how a person looks. I don't mean they have to look pretty or anything like that, but just a certain look they're trying to coordinate in the whole, into the whole film. That's not as true in the theater because you can manipulate those things more easily in the theater. Um, th as for theater, I tell you, Pat, I still, I understand it less and less. And I tell this to my class, I, I'll hear you out, I'll try to answer your questions, but it literally makes no sense to me. I, and it, even less than it used to. It, I don't understand why certain actors make it and other actors don't. Not that the ones who are make it are worse than the ones. They say they're all equally good. And yet some make it and some don't. The casting directors get all excited about one actress and just simply not about another actor. And the casting directors are the medium through which a person gets auditions and gets seen. And, and I just don't get it. And so I try to, with, if there are new students, I try to say it early on in the term, this I can't help you with. Yeah. And, and um, uh, and I, and, it, and, and just to bring it out in the open, I say, I can get you auditions for plays I'm directing. I cannot advocate for you. Right. I won't advocate against you. But I, I can't, because the, if you're a teacher, they're always on the lookout. Is he trying to get his students into this? <laughs> so, and it, it so, that won't work against you unless I start advocating for you. Yeah. So what I do, I don't cast the plays I direct anymore. I mean, I'm there when they talk about it. But I just say, what does everybody else think? And sometimes they'll pick a person who's a student of mine. But they picked him or her. I didn't. All I say, all I can do, and this is considerable, but all I can do is get you in the door. But some of you, I might not even even put you through the door if I think you're if I know you're not what they're looking for yeah and and uh, yeah but then I at least get to see no it doesn't work that way they resent seeing someone being made to see someone who's totally wrong for the part it works against you so I uh, but in typical circumstance I can get you in the door and then you're on your own just because I'm the director you know, the playwright so, has to approve it there are a lot of uh, working factors, yeah. And they should be the ones who approve it. And I, more and more, I don't cast the plays I direct. I, I sit there and I participate in the discussions, but I basically say, who does everybody want? Th then I find I'm much freer in rehearsal because there's always somebody who wants to start to fire actors. <laughs> and that, to me, is a matter of last resort. Yeah. Um, but if it's people I've insisted on, then I'm my. I'm very, I'm very compromised in trying to protect their job. But if it's not, I can just say, look, you, you hired them. This is the person you wanted. Now, and I said, fine. Now I'm not going to fire that person. Yeah. And they said they killed. Huh. There are so many stories in theater, of, a great performance coming through at the last minute. I've seen it happen, and there are legendary stories about it. Some of what are now regarded the greatest performances in Broadway history were until two days before the first audience. The people were that person's going to kill us. 
Wow. You know? and, 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 but on the smaller scale, I've actually seen that happen. There are late bloomers in every rehearsal period. It can be very frustrating, even frightening. But I'm, I would be more open to replacing somebody if, if we were in previews or something, and it still hasn't happened. But sometimes even in previews, say, no, wait, I think I'm seeing the beginning of something. Let's hold. Uh, to me, firing is the last resort. It does have to, if it's, if abuse is involved. I mean, first of all, uh, drug abuse, or if sexual abuse starts to happen, something like that, then okay, fine. Absolutely. Yeah. But the, uh, although even then, Alcohol, not so much. I grew up in the days of the great alcoholic American actors. <laughs> I came of age. In the first 10 years I was in, and some of them were impossible. And they, were, they had drinking problems. And they, but they were brilliant. Wow, yeah. And, 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 and uh, then in the 70s, I think it was, the late 70s even, I began to be aware that in casting office, say, oh, hire this person because they're so easy to work with and they don't have issues. And I said, yeah, but for 20 years I've been working with actors who have issues galore and are hard to work with and who are, in that sense, unreliable about because of their issues. But boy, do they deliver. So I don't care if someone's a nice person and a real, like, pro. I mean... If you can get all of that together with a great actor, then. But I mean, so I, I come from that era. Yeah, it's about the end product. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, in those those are the days. The best actor I ever saw on a stage was a woman named uh, Kim Stanley, and she's virtually forgotten now. But because she quit acting fairly early, her issues got the best of her. But she, they, somebody wrote a biography of her a few years ago called female Brando, and that's not an inappropriate. She was breathtaking. And and she did a lot of live TV back in those years and and some films early on. And so, some of the most electric stage work I've ever seen. And and she, but she, you know, had all kinds of problems. And then she retired for a while. It was all too much for her. And then she came back. The work after the comeback was still quite good, but it wasn't quite like when she was plum crazy, <laughs> it was fabulous. Wow. And Jason Robards and George C. Scott and people like that and a troubled folk. And Joe Van Fleet, actually. But what an artist, <laughs> you know? And, and um, so there's that. I'm not advocating that actors all start now <laughs> getting drunk again. Right, right. Impossible to work with. Yeah. But it wouldn't be the thing that would keep me from hiring them if they were really good. Yeah. Austin, I want to be uh, very respectful of your time. So I really just have uh, one more question for you. Whatever you want. Uh, so much of what we talk about here on the Ships podcast is about the importance of genuine, meaningful uh, relationships. And I'm Even curious. Working relationships? Uh, yeah. Like we're, it could be working relationships or uh, relationships with friends, family. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, like I said before, you've had an amazing career. And so I'm curious. It's uh, amazing only in the fact that I'm still here. <laughs> I mean, that's a feat in of itself. Yeah. So I'm curious as to your definition of what a genuine, meaningful 
human relationship is. You mean in general, in life? Yeah, in general, in life, yeah. Oh, God, does anybody have a good answer? <laughs> it's like Russian roulette. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, okay, there are different kinds of relationships. There are the most intimate and close ones. There are parent and child. I have a daughter, our only child, who, and she and I get along, always have gotten along great. She's a surgeon now. Oh, wow. She's in training to be a surgeon. Congratulations. Yes. And um, um, and my wife and I have been married in, in a year. It'll be 50 years. Wow. Another congratulations. Yeah. And that, so that, that just means, what that means is you stick it out. And through all the ups and downs, and there's inevitably ups and downs. And then if you stick it out, in my experience, that in fact starts to give it a luminous quality. Just the accumulation of the years and the good times and the bad times between you and the the misunderstandings and all the genuine mutual understandings. And, and so there's that, but I'm not. You know, this doesn't come in the form of advice. Everybody's life is different. I'm just describing my own. Um, some very close friendships. I'm really into that, uh, where you really share things and you really try to be there for each other, and it, yeah, and they last. Um, I try to avoid a breakup of a friendship over some issue not related to the friendship. Hmm. And friendships do break up. Yeah. I think if I suddenly found that one of my best friends for years was, say, a Trump supporter, I would still be fr- I would want to still be friends. Yeah. Um, and I don't agree with everything he does. Once in a while he does something I like. <laughs> when he said, I'm not going to do this strike because 150 people might die. I love the simplicity of that reason. <laughs> they say, he, that, that just doesn't make any sense. That he's just does it impulsively. Like, yeah, but isn't that finally what it's all about? People will die if you do a certain thing. Now, I wish he would apply this to these children in the southeast, in southwest of our country and so on. But anyway, there's a lot of – it's – you, you heard it here first, but this is a politically divisive moment in our country. Oh, yeah. I know that's a highly original insight. But um, I would like it if a friendship of mine could survive the two of us being on the opposite sides of that question, whether it has to do with Trump or, or anything else. Um, I don't think those things are unimportant, obviously. But I think... So, I'm not comparing political divisiveness to friendship in terms of importance. I just like put them on separate tracks. Um, I also don't want to be, because in this profession, people you've known for years, people, we all end up betraying each other. Or, yeah, betraying each other. We undercut somebody. We see the two that they don't get a job that they really want because we, I mean, if it involves us, 
if it involves if it doesn't involve us and you betray you undercut somebody getting a job if it doesn't involve you that that's bad <laughs> just, just keep your mouth shut but um if it if you're involved in something and some people are advocating for a good friend of yours and you say no that's happened to me i've been on the receiving end of that where a friend of mine i said don't no don't hire him that's fine with me they have a right i mean somebody's asking them for advice they have to say whatever they think about the appropriateness of that um um i um the only friendships the only times that and this is so vague, but I don't know how to put it in a specific way. If as life goes by and the difficulties of life go by and a friend gets stuck in certain patterns of behavior that get harder and harder for you to be around, you just try to phase out. I'm trying to think if I ever had a sharp, if I ever engineered a sharp dis, um, um, dissolving of a friendship. I've had friendships that have dissolved, but I haven't been the one who's dissolved them. Um, it takes a lot for me to do that, uh, to, for me to unilaterally do that, to say to them, I'm not your friend anymore because of what you did. I hope I never have a incident like that. Um, um, people say you're neurotic you want to be liked that's probably true and it, sometimes it you sometimes don't even make the right choice <laughs> because you want to you don't want to be hated it's not so much you want to be liked you don't want to be hated now I could get all sentimental and say that's probably true of a lot of people who at some point in their life have had a the problem that I had, the, pro the, prob the problem of stuttering. People who stuttered heavily want to be liked. That, it, that gets ingrained, and very deeply ingrained, almost reflexively into there. And because you, you are often disliked for, not disliked, but just shunned for that reason. And um, um, so it could be a neurosis from that not some purity of soul or anything, just a, a neurotic reflection of an earlier pattern in your life. Um, but I will walk a mile to avoid a friendship breaking up. A friendship just slowly dissolving just from distance and just from, even if you're in the same city, but just different paths. That, that happens all the time. Yeah. And yeah. then when you went into them again, it's not the same. But that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about the ending, the deliberate ending of a friendship. Um, uh, I, uh, some people have stopped talking to me because they've thought I've betrayed them or something. And maybe, strictly speaking, I have. But I never thought that would mean we wouldn't be friends anymore. I'm be betrayed, I don't mean by treacherously stabbing them in the back. 
Yeah. But, but yeah. just uh, not following through on something that was very important to them. Gotcha. Two or three people have uh, that sort of ended things. Or sometimes a person you're very close to, they just sort of begin to go crazy. And I don't know how to handle that. I'm not good at that. Some people are. And some people stick with these people. And you treasure the people who stick with those people. Um, sometimes, and certainly in this profession, but not only. In, this profession helps p people who have issues. This profession helps people to go crazy. Because... <laughs> Not only the ups and downs of it, and the volatility of it, and the, um, but also acting, certainly, involves the pushing of buttons, in your. No matter how a person works, whether they work internally or out externally, they work, you know. Still terrific actors, but certain buttons are being pushed all the time. And sometimes buttons get activate things that are very deeply the the need to act. I'm not talking about the need to be famous, which is of no interest. But the need to act. Um, I mean, I have nothing against people who need to be famous. And sometimes they're right; they should be famous. They are. They've got it. So that's terrific. You know. There's nothing wrong with the need to be famous. It just doesn't interest me that much. Right. But the, but the need to act, the thing that makes them interesting actors is inextricably tied up with wounds, certainly in my case, but, w but with most actors. And that's why actors tend to be very tolerant of each other because they kind of know that instinct almost on an animal level and 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 the other actor would have to be just absolutely impossible or destructive for them to not to stop wanting to understand that right but but you encounter a lot of neurotic behavior in actors you work with including yourself because it's a neurotic profession almost by definition it's like pretending to be somebody else it's like it's going into uncharted waters you don't know what you're going to trip over you don't know what's going to come up and and bite you <laughs> you don't know if the bite will have any anything in it that is um, venomous uh, you don't you don't know whether you're going to bite yourself in in an evil way or not has lasting consequences. You don't know when you're in over your head, emotionally speaking. Um, something that you wouldn't have, wouldn't have been over your head, emotionally speaking, five years ago suddenly is. So it's a profession that constantly pushes buttons inside you, not all of which you have control over, and not of what, not all of which you even want to have control over, or that will. Uh, interfere with their power in the work. But sometimes the very thing that gives you power in the work is also out to get you. So um, 
Most actors understand that about each other. And as I say, the, the behavior has to become really seriously questionable before that will, and different actors have different thresholds about that. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, and it's what I, what the last 10 minutes has been, has been a very, very wordy way of saying I don't know how to answer these questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, a crazy industry for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an industry that, that the industry, bec because, the, I mean, in its own terms, the industry isn't crazy at all. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, it's Darwinian, but it, it doesn't, it makes, it's, it's not actually crazy. Right, right. Its rules are very clear. Its its arbitrariness is very clearly laid out. No actor can say, "Oh, I had no idea." Yo, yeah, I mean, oh, you know, yeah. It's, it's clearly, it's, yeah. It's in, it has its own weird logic that that most people say, "Okay, I get it." Oop, that hurt. Oh well, okay, carry on. Or no, I don't want it anymore. But it, it's not. It doesn't entice you and then ambush you and trap you. Right. It, it's, right. It has its own logic, but. The work itself involves many unpredictable chemical, emotionally chemical elements that you have to stay open to, but then the fact that you're open to them can, can cause you trouble. Yeah. Well, Austin, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Thank you. So, I, I really you ask great questions. Oh, oh, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you sharing your story and really sharing about your experiences and your perspective on acting as well. I think that our listeners will really get a lot out of it, whether they're actors or not. It's I'm a big believer that acting is really this lens into life. Well, if it's not that, it's worthless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's totally. Yeah. Uda would have a phrase. There's acting that's about life, which she, of course, encouraged. There's acting that's about life, and then there's acting that's just about other acting. <laughs> oh, that, that's good. Yeah. I like that. That kind of sums yeah. it all up. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anywhere, wh whether it be a website or social media, that people could find out more information about you? No. No? Oh, that's okay. I, mean, I don't have a website. Okay, okay. I, I do, uh, it, it doesn't involve care and feeding. And I, <laughs> you don't have time for that. I'm in a play called Life Sucks. Okay, great, great. How it's long is it running? Theater till? Row. Great. He played it downtown from mid-March to mid-April and got very, very well received. And so then they found the means to reopen it on Theater Row. And it started previews June 14th and has, and then officially reopened. It has an, another official opening night we had after that. And now they plan to run it all summer. Great. I mean, if people abruptly stop coming, they won't. <laughs> but so far the audiences are building and a lot of people really seem to enjoy it a lot. Nice. And uh, who, it, one of, this happens in the theater all the time. You take it on, go, oh, this is sort of a cool project. This, oh, we're just playing a month downtown. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. And then it turns into this whole other thing. And, of course, the reverse can happen, too. <laughs> right, right. But, but this one really seems to be taking hold of people. Great. 
Well, if you're in New York City or you're coming to New York City, be sure to check out Life Sucks at Theater Row this summer. Yes. So. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Austin. Great having you on the show. And great being here. Thanks. Austin Pendleton, everyone. Very excited to have him on the show. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was so gracious of Austin to share his story with us on how he became the actor, director, and writer that he is and the life lessons he learned along the way. So thank you so much, Austin. If you liked this episode, please feel free to leave a comment, share it with a friend, subscribe, or if you have the Anchor app, please feel free to give me a call and leave a voicemail. This voicemail has the opportunity of being released in a future episode, so we would love to hear from you. You also have the opportunity to support this podcast. Supporting this podcast will allow me to continue producing amazing episodes with inspiring guests just like Austin Pendleton. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I am loving that you guys are tuning in and enjoying these episodes, and I can't wait to join you in the next one.